Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I have Charlie with me today, uh, so you can probably guess which direction we're going in, Charlie. Oh, we are going back to the 17th century. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Tell us why and who is here to talk to us. Okay, well, today we have Frances Quinn with us. She's a journalist and now a novelist too. Her debut novel, The Smallest Man, was published by Simon & Schuster earlier this year to rave reviews. And she's very kindly agreed to come and talk to us about it today. Hello, Frances. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, this is going to be brilliant. So we have had small mention of this man because we spoke to uh, John Wolfe about freak shows, Victorian freak shows. He spoke to us a little bit about the history behind it, but we're actually going back to speak about Geoffrey Hudson. The smallest man is based around this real life character at the court of King Charles I. So who was Geoffrey Hudson and how much do we know about him? So I should probably say first that it's the book is really inspired by Geoffrey Hudson. So Geoffrey Hudson doesn't actually appear in the novel. Um, the main character in the novel is Nat Davy, who is based on Geoffrey Hudson. So uh, Geoffrey Hudson, like a lot of characters that are sort of on the edge of history, we know bits and pieces of his story. So we know that he was born in Oakham, in Rutland. We know that he was presented to Queen Henrietta Maria in a pie. Um, and what I found interesting is that obviously, you know, he was presented to her as a kind of human pet. She had other people with dwarfism at the court and she had a kind of human animal menagerie with dwarfs and a, and a giant and a, and monkeys and dogs. But what was interesting about Geoffrey is that years later, when she went off to Holland to drum up arms and ammunition for the Civil War, he was still with her. So there was obviously more to the relationship between them than just this thing of him being a human pet. So we know that. We know he was there. We know he was there when um, she came under bombardment in Bridlington. We know he escaped with her to France. He was involved in a duel there. And then Geoffrey Hudson was captured by pirates and taken to Morocco as a slave. Um, But that doesn't happen to Matt Davey. Gosh. Writing the actual story of Geoffrey Hudson into a cohesive piece of historical fiction must have been a real challenge when he was so on the periphery. How did you decide what parts of his real story had to make it into this story of our fictional character, Nat Davy? That was really probably one of the most difficult things because 
you know when people read historical novels they often do want to learn something so you feel you can't veer too far away from the facts and obviously you know you don't want a misleading background but I didn't want I couldn't put everything in he has has quite a long life so I kind of chose the most dramatic elements so he does get presented to the queen in a pie and then he basically has a ring a ringside seat for her role in the civil war which I think is is a a part of civil war history that we don't really hear much about so through him I was able to talk about what she was involved in doing because he was there beside her. Historical novelists must be more at liberty to express their personal opinions in their writing. I noticed this, especially with your reading of Queen Henrietta Maria, who's still a divisive figure today. So what do you make of the Queen and her role at court? She is such a fascinating person. So she she comes over from France. She's a French princess. She's 15. She gets married off to a bloke who's 10 years older than her and by all accounts, not great with women. And they start off this absolutely horrendous marriage where, you know, they have arguments in public and there, there are evenings when he doesn't speak to her. There's, there's one um, documented event where he basically writes to her and says, yeah, I, I will be sleeping with you because I've got a duty, but don't think it's because I fancy you or like you. Oh my god. Yeah, it's just a port, you know, not in those words, but that's, that was the import of the letter. And it just must have been horrendous. And then on the other side, she's got this pressure from the people that she's brought over with her that, you know, she's supposed to make things better for the Catholics, that the Pope's entrusted her with this sacred task, that the Catholics are persecuted. She is supposed to persuade the king to change the laws. So she's got them in one ear. And then him being really horrible in the other ear. And then the Duke of Buckingham stirring the pot to keep everything bubbling. And she's 15 and she's homesick. She barely speaks any English. So this is how she starts. And then from there, she becomes this woman who was very, very involved in the Civil War struggle. She's the person she goes off to Holland. She teaches herself or learns about arms and ammunition so that she can buy the right things for him. She brings them back. She becomes, she comes under bombardment. There's this series of events where when she's finally got all the arms and ammunition, she comes back from Holland. They land at Bridlington. They come under bombardment in the middle of the night and have to shelter in a ditch in the snow all night long. And then they take these arms and ammunition down to Oxford where the king's headquarters and she basically leads the men. She sits outside with them, eats around the campfire and she just becomes transformed into this incredible character. And I was really interested to know how that had happened because I don't think that's really explained in the history books. Gosh, do you think that's why she became so divisive because she was involved and and outspoken and Catholic? Very much so. I mean, I think, I think you see it sometimes with male leaders now. You know, almost the worst thing you can say about a president or a prime minister is, you know, the wife behind the throne. Look at Hillary Clinton when Bill was president. Well, what, how, how much of this is coming from her? And I think it's probably a similar thing that, that he was, in World War One, anyone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, because she was Catholic and Catholics were so hated, people were terrified that she was going to, turn him Catholic 
And then some of the things he did made them think that might be happening. So, yeah, she was an incredible hate figure. Gosh. I mean, aside from, from Henrietta Maria as a hate figure, there's another character that you've touched on very briefly who I thoroughly enjoyed meeting in your book, and that's the handsome George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham. Now, yes. it was interesting reading The Smallest Man because in very quick succession, I read three novels in which he popped up, um, Earthly Joys by Philippa Gregory, mm. The Honey and the Sting by Elizabeth Fremantle, and then, of course, The Smallest Man. How much fun was it researching him and bringing him to life? He is a lot of fun. He is so awful. I think, I don't know, maybe we've all worked with someone a bit like him. I know I have. I've, I worked with someone who was just awful, was just terrible at his job and lazy. And I remember this was in magazines and we would we, get a new editor and everyone would go, oh, she'll see through him. She'll realise. And they never did. And it was like this guy was casting spells on people. And I think Villiers is a bit like that. He seems to be able to charm the right people. I mean, he never bothered charming her, but he was charming Charles. He'd charmed Charles' father. Um, obviously, there were allegations that they were in a sexual relationship. And yeah, I think he was just a guy who would do whatever it took to come out on top. And there, there was a point where half the country believed that actually he was in charge. This it was a funny. It was funny because before they were accusing her of being the power behind the throne, they were accusing him. So poor old Charles. Everybody thought he was being pushed around by just about anybody, and he probably was. <laughs> and it wasn't until um, Buckingham uh, was assassinated. I don't think there's too much of a spoiler to say that no. on history podcast. It wasn't until his assassination that that the relationship between Charles and Henrietta Maria really changes for the better. Exactly. And I thought that was really interesting. And again, I don't, I never found an explanation for that. I mean, it was obvious that once he was out of the picture or until he was out of the picture, she didn't stand a chance. She wasn't going to be let in. But somehow she must have found a way to almost become for Charles what Buckingham had been. His, his sounding board, his guide, the person who said, oh, you're so clever, you're so marvellous. And somehow she did that. And so I had to I had to think of a way that that might have happened. And in the book, Nat Davy, the main character, is very involved in that. He's the one who gives her advice and says, try, try it this way, try that. And, and it works. And of course, we've, no, we've, we've got no way of knowing whether Jeffrey Hudson was secretly their marriage guidance counsellor, and I suspect <laughs> not. But something happened there. Something made the change. It's it's incredible when you start looking at the the lives of of these people at this time. There's always the the slight litmus test on how a relationship's going, and the fact that there was no sniff of a pregnancy from Henrietta Maria until Buckingham's gone. And apparently, she was always claiming that um, it was a saint's day and it wasn't possible to sleep together. There were, he complained at one point that there seemed to be a great many more saints days than he ever thought there possibly could be. I suppose it's a 17th century equivalent of a headache. Fantastic. <laughs> I think, uh, so I would, would you say he's disabled? He's, he's a different ability, isn't he? Um, but these are, this is something that we don't see often in history books, is it? It's, I think it's fair to say that disabled people have been marginalized in history and we don't read about them and and how their lives were and how they were perceived 
uh, based on the books we read at the time and the bodice rippers we see on the screen, there's just no room for them, which is shocking. So I love that you've wanted to explore this sort of forgotten angle of history and talk about someone who was different. Um, did you find anything that surprised you when you were researching him? I think what did surprise me was the friendship that obviously did grow up between them. I mean, as I say, we don't know the details of the, the fact of the, of the relationship, but the fact that he was there over all those years. She didn't take any of the other dwarfs to Holland. She didn't take them when she escaped to France. So there must have been some kind of friendship and trust between them. So that surprised me. And then I guess sadly what surprised me was you would hope that things had changed a lot since then. And obviously, researching the book, um, I got interested in, in dwarfism and, in, and how people with dwarfism are looked at these days. And there's a guy that I follow on Twitter, and he would often say that, you know, he'd be out walking down the street and people would video him. And that's what surprised me, that that's kind of the equivalent of Nat being a human pet in a way. Mm that things really haven't changed as much as we would like to think. And and that was one thing that I hope people will take from the book. I think if you have spent 300 odd pages in Nat's head, you might think twice. Maybe most people are not going to video people with dwarfism, but people will do the sideways look that they think isn't noticed. Oh, well, that is a dwarf. He must be used to people looking at him. Well, no one is. No one ever is. No one ever gets used to that. You're ruining their day. And I hope it might just make people think, oh, that's a bad idea. Oh, Oh, I I was at London Zoo with my friend's kid and he was three at the time. And there was a chap there that had two um, artificial legs below the knee. And he was staring and I said, Perry, don't look at him like that. Um, It's not nice to stare at people who look different. And he said, but I want to know why he hasn't got any legs. And I said, well, perhaps you could ask him politely. And if he wants to tell you, he can, but he might not want to. And so he goes, March, I was like mortified. He goes, March, he goes, Mister, why haven't you got any legs? And the man was with his family. God love him. He understood that kids are kids. And he just said to him, Oh, I had an accident, but it's okay because I've got new ones now. And he went, David Bate, you look like a superhero. And then he oh. off because he was done with the conversation. <laughs> I was just like, I, bless I, you, small child. <laughs> I think, I think actually most, I mean, obviously you pick your moments, but I think most people with disabilities, my mum was also an amputee and I know that she would have been totally fine with that. Yeah, that, that is much better than making a big deal of it going, don't, don't look at him or yeah. the, it's the sideways glance that I think. I think that's really don't like. Yeah. And, and do you know what else gets to me? We have a young chap who comes to Chelsea who is not only in a wheelchair but has breathing off apparatus and everything. But his mum brings him to every single game. And I see people ask her how he is when mm. he's there. That annoys me. I'm like, ask him. I will make a point of saying, how are you doing today, George? Yeah, it's the classic, does he take sugar, isn't it? He's not deaf. <laughs> mm. yeah it's weird isn't it and I think that's more offensive than someone outright coming out and asking you okay. yeah I, th- I think that's it it's 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 about sort of realizing you know this is what what I wanted to show people with Nat I suppose is it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside on the inside we're pretty much all the same we've all got the same thoughts we can all be hurt we all want the same things and if anyone takes that away from the book 
I'll be really happy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I think this is definitely applies to Charlie um, when you say, because she has written down that the smallest man has the ultimate historical <laughs> in the English Civil War. We know she lives and breathes it, a.k.a. the War of the Three Kingdoms, because she's going to be historically correct in her notes, because she's a girly swat. Tower <laughs> is Nat's story led by real events. When people open this, how much are they going to be carried through real events? Well, Charlie, you're going to hate me for this. <laughs> I really, really don't like the English Civil War. <laughs> I studied it at what? school. I did yeah. it for A-level. I did it for A-level. And, you know, that will ruin you for any kind of history. That, that's so funny, though. I studied it at A-level. Oh, I didn't afterwards, I, I just couldn't. I, I just wanted to know what happened next and became obsessed. That's so funny. You maybe had better teaching than I did. I just had, <laughs> it just seemed to be this saga of politics and taxes. I don't think... me, I cringe when I hear the words rump parliament. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Rump parliament and uh, ship money. That was all that... They were t- the only two phrases I could remember. The Queen, I don't remember ever being mentioned. Maybe there was a vague thing that she was Catholic. And I just thought, so I came across the story of Geoffrey Hudson. I thought, oh, I've got to do this. So that was kind of, you know, the Civil War came as part of the package. So I didn't really love it at the time. And I did think, oh, God, how am I going to make this interesting? But then kind of when I looked into it and I did see the people behind it, then I, I fall in love with it might be a bit extreme, but I got <laughs> to like it more. So, yeah, I mean, it is led by events how can it not be when when all that's going on basically what what i did because the book's written in first person you know you'll know anyone listening to this will know the lead up to the civil war is complicated there's lots going on there are all sorts of factions and i knew that i couldn't put that in a book that i wanted if i wanted people to keep turning the pages so because i was writing in first person what i decided was nat would only talk about the things that affected him and that he was there for and that interested him. So that meant quite a lot of the political and religious stuff, although I have to give the background, obviously, because people have to know what's going on. You know, he's he's not there at all the meetings. He's not there at all the discussions. So those things are not in there. But, yeah, the, of course, the basic events have to be right. And, you know, what an incredible time. The thing that amazes me is most people, unless they did have the misfortune to do it for A-level, they don't know anything about this period, literally nothing. And I mean, spoiler alert, they kill the king. 
Yeah. <laughs> like people don't even know we ever killed the king. It's so, fantastic. Yeah, it's just amazing. So, so yeah, I have got, I put all that background in there. So all the Civil War stuff, obviously, you know, I hope anyway, I've made it as accurate as I could. But you won't find much in the way of battles because he's not in them. So there's none of that. But yeah, it had to be led by the events because in a way that shapes his story. That's that's what he kind of, his life was was played out against that background. So I kind of, what I took was, if years later you were to bump into Nat in the tavern and he starts telling you his life story, which I think he probably would, these are the things he would tell you about. Mm. These are the <laughs> things that mean something to him. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's a problem with the way sometimes that the civil war is taught in that you are taught the dates of the battles. You're taught, you know, how many people were killed, who won and then which battle they want, went on to next. But the people around it and the, the, the factions and the politics within what's happening with real people is, infinitely more fascinating when you see families split down the middle um cousins on one side fighting cousins on the other side because they disagree on an ideological um point of of interest that then becomes incredibly fascinating so taking what you've taken one person's perspective on the events that are happening is actually a great gateway in because if you try and sit and read a book mm. on the Civil War and you're not the kind of person who's going to be turned on by this is the date of the battle, this is how many people were killed, then this is a great way in. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think what's nice is a lot of people have said to me the minute they finished it, they were Googling. And that's, you know, it's great if people would want to learn more about it. Yeah, that, that's brilliant. It can be a way into a subject. Mm. Um, oh goodness yeah it certainly works with the bloody tudors they get all the attention yeah i'm so i i think it's time for the stewards to elbow the tudors aside and have their moment in the sun it's so true it's so true i mean as as someone who's interested in in the 17th century and and all of the stuff that was going on at the time the immersive experience we've had over the last few years with brexit yep um with uh the plague yes <laughs> i'm i'm constantly looking at london and just thinking please nobody light a match <laughs> yeah, yes <laughs> I mean, even the dutch hate us I mean, just... <laughs> oh and she's not doing herself justice francis because she's actually writing um a trilogy from the point of view of barbara villiers and she's editing oh wow yeah, so that probably... sounds amazing well these are more marginalized people so yeah and they're interesting aren't they they're they are interesting people because you can you get a sideways look at history if you choose those people that are on the edge yeah a more rounded view i think um Mm. is there anyone that you had to bring to life for this book that you ended up thinking god this person's awful i hate them or is it just fun like with the duke of buckingham yeah it was it was mainly fun i guess i don't like the king very much <laughs> i really feel like he was a bit of a twit <laughs> and i think perhaps in common with modern royalty you know he probably suffered from that experience of spending his whole life surrounded by people going oh, you're really clever sir that's amazing sir what a great idea sir 
you know, that's never going to make someone a great leader, actually. They, a great leader needs people around them going, oh, I don't think so. Have you thought of that? And he probably never had that. And then that he was so awful to her, so awful to a 15-year-old girl. Yeah, I don't, I didn't like him. But that's not to say I didn't enjoy writing about him. I did. And in fact, in an early draft, the first draft I showed to my agent, she said, you need to make him more sympathetic or no one's going <laughs> to care when he dies. <laughs> he did not know how to compromise. That was not even... No, a, exactly. Did not even occur to him that he could work with with Parliament. And, and also, I, th- I think, you know, he just had this very inflated idea of his own intellect. <laughs> he thought he was this wily leader who could you know, get round people, he could play them off against each other, and he was rubbish at it. I was giving a lecture on Kaiser Wilhelm II last night and saying exactly the same. <laughs> There's a lot of it about. That's the trouble. <laughs> and this is the fun of, of being a historical novelist rather than being a serious non-fiction mm. historian is you get to have opinions on these people so you don't you you can look at all of the available information and then say I think Charles was was a terrible Mm. and you can you can bring that to life through your work yeah that that is the joy of it that you don't you know I don't have to present a different perspective on him I don't have to be fair to him, actually. I just have to do what I would do if I met someone in real life. That's that's what we do. We meet people and we judge them on what we can see. And two people might come to a completely different conclusion. And in fiction, that's the fun of it. You can do that. I think it's really interesting saying that you know we do we do look at people and judge them when actually the the central premise of of the whole book is that we shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> the fun of being uh doing historical fiction though isn't it um it just you don't have to be right but I know that when I do historical fiction I spend a lot of time arguing with myself um and I know Charlie does Charlie will do this but I don't know if you do Francis where you like this is possible so I can put it in but it wouldn't have happened and then like go just let go you fool it's yeah okay um and they're going oh but no i can't because it's not real and then the other shoulder's telling you yeah but it's a story just make it up definitely no i def i definitely had that i mean there is um again it's as you said it's not it's not a spoiler on a historical podcast to say that uh villiers was assassinated but actually the scene just before that i've made up it's something that we know didn't happen because we know the king and queen weren't in Portsmouth that day. But they, but I felt it's something that could have happened if they just decided to go there. Then the conversation I show, which is not with them, could have happened. The conversation between Nat and Nat and Villiers could have happened. So that was kind of my rule, really. I I had things that maybe were not documented as happening, but on the basis of what is documented feasibly might have happened so for example there's there's um there's a part where there's a kidnap plot against the queen and actually what's documented is that there was a rumor of a kidnap plot and I've kind of taken that and run with it a bit but there was a rumor at that time um communications weren't great I so I felt yeah this this could have been taken a bit further so I use that kind of creative license. I think you can't go too far because it annoys people. 
and I did I always think if you'd have had him like going to the moon for yeah a... <laughs> would have been a bit, a bit awkward but I did isn't there but I think we all stress ourselves out completely unnecessarily with where the line is um, and the funny the funny thing is I dreaded all along somebody saying oh this is not historically accurate far more than I dreaded someone going this is a really boring story and that's the wrong way round. I know and then you sit there and you think hang on the crown the Tudors <laughs> yes exactly accuracy I mean the one, the one I always thought was um oh what's it called um the Scottish uh, film Braveheart. I mean, completely oh, yeah. nonsense. And you know, and all the world, so all the world war II, there were no kilts and no swords. Exactly, and all the World War Two films where you know Britain plays a very minor part to the Americans. You just have you do, but but I agree with you, Alex. I you do spend a lot of time thinking: Can I? Should I? Will people hate this? And in the end, you have just have to be governed by: Will it? Does it make sense? And will it make someone turn the pages? And can you stand up on the day of judgment and say, this is why I did it. This yeah. is, this is what, what I had to work with. I've then taken some artistic license here. An artistic license is actually so much more interesting at the moment. I mean, the, the first thing that's coming to my head is the film recently uh, about Mary Queen of Scots, where she meets and has a conversation with Elizabeth I, which we know didn't happen. People went yeah. nuts, didn't they? they? Really oh, and then crazy. all the blokes went nuts because there was a reference to a period as well. Yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting and it was, it was, it was great art. And, you know, Shakespeare wasn't particularly um, interested in the historical no. accuracy of his work, but it's, it's great art. And, uh, I think that's where where the historical novelists can justify themselves and sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think I I do have a an author's note at the end where I explain some of the things that are true and some of the things that are not. And I was constantly I had that author's note in the back of my head the whole time, and I don't think it did in the end, but it was always going to begin. This is not a history book, because it's not. You have to make an entertaining story, but give it enough historical reality that people don't feel they've been cheated it's a brilliant brilliant book it's a great role thank you and you know some of the things that that nat davy gets up to and some of the things that we see through his eyes are are just incredible i mean he even learns to ride a horse yes he does which i've never done so (laughs) that was quite tricky (laughs) and yeah he, he he's um he has a lot of adventures Nat. he's very I wanted him to be quite a blokey bloke because the title, The Smallest Man, part of that is about the fact of what is a man. You know, he he has in his mind that men are big and strong and he's small and weak. And so does that make him not a man? So a lot of his struggles are to prove that he's a man like like any other. So I wanted him to be quite blokey. He's... There are times when people um, disrespect him, you know, he doesn't want to have a debate with them. He wants to punch them on the nose. <laughs> That's who Nat is. Amazing. Yeah, he really, he really is. He, he's such a great character to spend time with. And uh, yeah, I, I sort of wanted, wanted all these things for him. And it's a very, it's a very satisfying book. I really, really loved it. Thank you. Francis, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about The Smallest Man. Uh, it is out. It is 
definitely available in our bookshop. There it is. Holding it up gloriously. <laughs> uh, and yes, buy it from us because then not only do we take money away from Amazon, who are monsters, uh, but we also make sure that Francis gets paid and History Hack gets a cut as well, which is perfect. exciting for us, the idea of any kind of recompense for working for History Hack. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.